We're working through the book of <clears throat> Romans. The most difficult chapter in the Bible is what I call this and why we need to study it. We launched it last Sunday night, Romans 9, and we looked at the first 13 verses, pretty much the first 13 verses, and I said we'd continue in that. And so tonight I want to look at Romans 9, 14 through 18. It's a pretty tightly argued text where Paul is dealing with a kind of mindset, a kind of objection that he sees forming in these Jewish readers and thinkers. Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? So obviously he's linking this up with what he's just talked about in the first 13 verses. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, the Lord says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Notice the way he talks. He doesn't use the word choice. He's talking about willing and exertion, the, the, the exercise of human effort. So then it depends not on human will, willpower, your ability to work your way into God's presence, will, or exertion, effort. doesn't depend on those things. But on God, who has mercy. depends on the mercy of God, not human effort. And then these verses that cause people to form the camps of Calvinist and Arminian. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, that's God, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And those are tough verses. We're going to look at them tonight. Really quickly... When Paul starts off this text saying, what shall we say then? Do you see that at the beginning of that 14th verse? What shall we say then? Here's what we should know from last week's study by way of reminder. Here's what we should carry into tonight's study. We should know a few things. First, there are two big ideas in the opening 13 verses. Two terms. Israel and Israel. Election are the terms used in those first 13 verses. And each is used, this is the important part, each is used in two different ways. There is Israel, as it is used to refer to all ethnic Jews, all descendants of Abraham. Paul says it was to this group, ethnic Jews, that God gave some pretty specific blessings. He lists them in 9, 1 to 5. He gave them to the Jewish people, the ethnic Jewish people. 
And then, he said, Paul says, there's this another group. There's another group from among all those ethnic Jews who place their faith and pledge their ongoing commitment to God and his promises. And he talks about that group in verses 7, 8, and 9 of chapter 1. So Israel is used to describe two people. It's used to describe all the descendants of Abraham just by birth. And it's used to describe those who, who, like Abraham, had faith in the promises of God. That's a smaller group from within this group. And he uses that term in two ways in that ninth chapter. Secondly, that term election. God's purpose in election, verse 11, he uses that phrase. It was to show that his blessing would rest on faith in his free promise rather than human effort or ethnic identity or birth order. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I got it all backwards. So this Jewish tendency to box God into honoring them just because they were Abraham's descendants. Now, think about it. Don't you see that coming up over and over again in the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament? Yeah. Yeah. Don't tell us we need to. We're Abraham's descendants. Jesus, I'll tell you, God can raise up from these stones. That, 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 that's, that's not what counts. That's the same thing Paul is dealing with, the same argument he's dealing with here. The Jewish tendency to box God into honoring them just because they were the physical descendants of Abraham. And Paul says that will not stand. That's what Romans 9 is about. The third thing that we should remember God's free decision to extend his covenant of faith through Isaac rather than Ishmael, to Jacob rather than Esau, that didn't, this is important, that didn't exclude either Ishmael and his descendants, nor Esau and his descendants, that didn't exclude them from entering into the blessing and the favor of God. So in other words, in choosing to extend his covenant of mercy along the lines of faith rather than the lines of ethnicity, God wasn't eternally saving some people and damning other people. We know that. We know that. Because not all of Jacob's descendants remained faithful and not all of Esau's descendants remained unfaithful. They could be circumcised and join the people of God. Any Gentile could, from any of the surrounding nations. God wasn't excluding them. He wasn't pre-selecting certain people and not others. Unacceptable as it was to the Jewish nation, even in Jesus' day, God was sovereign to extend his grace wherever he found a faith-filled heart. And the Jewish people hated that. Many still do.
this is so important. Romans 9, in my opinion, is all about the way in which God's covenant would flow, the terms on which it would be received, not about who would be allowed to respond and who would not be allowed to respond. And I know that raises questions, and I'm hoping we'll get to those tonight. Now, on to today's text. Thinking about all those things we just talked about, Paul starts out, what, what, what shall we say then? Those words, they're meant to set up. Paul's, Paul's playing both sides of the argument here. He's carrying the case all by himself. He's imagining what the Jewish audience is going to say to these things that he's just pointed out. So he sets up an imagined argument. The Jewish argument was that God was committed to a genealogical approach to salvation. The Jews were God's people by virtue of simply being born descendants of Abraham. And there was nothing God could ever do but save them. In fact, Paul has already dealt with this Jewish position in that sixth verse of the ninth chapter where he says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. And the reason, the reason Paul has to say that was to the Jewish mind, the only way a Jew could ever be lost would be if God went back on his word. So completely had religious Judaism boxed God into an ethnic redemption that God was not sovereign or free in the extension of his mercy on anything other than Jewish terms. And that bugs Paul. So Paul then went on, you remember last week, Paul went on to explain from the examples of Ishmael and Isaac, from the examples of Jacob and Esau, that God's covenant grace didn't advance along the lines of either ethnicity, human works, Or birth order. None of that. Isaac's a child of promise because it's from Abraham and Sarah and there was no possibility of them having children. Ishmael was the result of a younger woman sleeping with Abraham. Just what ordinary human beings could accomplish on their own. And God says, no, it has to be through promise. Not human works. Not human potential. Not human accomplishment. Promise. My work. So God's saving mercy, it wasn't going to be locked into a Jewish religious system. Isaac's birth to barren Sarah and aged Abraham was proof that God's covenant advanced not along the lines of human accomplishment, but along the lines of bare faith in divine promise plus nothing. That's why in verse 8 of chapter 9, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Ishmael and Isaac both had flesh, but by, by children of the flesh, he means just human copulation producing a child. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Those words were devastating to Judaism. God worked through faith in divine promise plus nothing. And that concept would never stand unchallenged by the Jewish people who would read Paul's letter. 
And it's, it's to their obvious arguments that Paul wants to give voice in this, in this text. All right, point number one. Don't worry, we're quite a ways in. When God responds in mercy to nothing but faith, he is not breaking his word to Abraham. That's an important point. Look at verses 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, quote, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. End of quote. So then, Paul says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the lead question is clearly stated. Is there injustice on God's point, on God's part? And, and the reason that's important, Paul isn't introducing a brand new issue in these verses. When he mentions an injustice being committed by God, Paul's going back to the same issue he raised in verse 6, where he says, it's, it's not as though the word of God has failed. So God's word, his promise being broken, and God being unjust, that, that, those are the same thing. That's what Paul's talking about. If God's promise isn't kept, then God's lying. That's what Paul's saying. If God's promise isn't kept, then he's unjust. This is the Jewish hotspot. In the Jewish mind, if God is going to justify anyone on any other basis than being a physical descendant of Abraham, then God is a covenant breaker. That's the Jewish mind. He's going back on a promise he made to Abraham. If God justifies anyone by sheer faith in his saving mercy, or if he condemns any Jew, any descendant of Abraham with whom he has made covenant, then yes, in the Jewish mind, there's an injustice on God's part. That can't stand in their mind. And so Paul continues. He says, for he says to Moses, 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Paul's conclusion It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's significant. This is a good move on Paul's part. It's significant that he cites these words, given to Moses, nonetheless, to refute any notion of Jewish limited redemption. So right from their own scriptures, right from their own law, right from one of their primary leaders, Paul pulls this open-ended statement about God's freedom. I'll have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy. Don't tell me on whom I can show mercy and grace. And he quotes Moses. Note something else. These verses are dealing specifically and exclusively with the subject of God's mercy. Paul will deal with God's wrath later on, but these verses don't mention wrath. I hope you notice that. The subject here exclusively is mercy. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy, underline, on whom I will have mercy, underline. I will have compassion, underline, on whom I have compassion, end of quote. So then it depends not on human will, Paul says, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. All through it, mercy, mercy, mercy. Compassion, compassion, mercy. 
And note carefully the way verse 15, it sets up the meaning of verse 16. 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I don't know if you remember from last week, but here, and I say it with respect, I think that R.C. Sproul is dead wrong about this verse. It's not the linchpin for Calvinism. The it in verse 16, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, that it is the revelation of God's mercy. Nothing but God's mercy. That it in verse 16, it ties directly back to the subject of verse 15. And just simple honesty with the text, it requires the admission there's simply no other subject listed in verse 15 other than divine mercy and compassion. So Paul is answering the Jewish objection to grace being restricted to just the physical descendants of Abraham. No. I'll give mercy to whomever I want to give mercy. I'll be compassionate to whomever I want to be compassionate. So, point number two. God is so committed to revealing his mercy that he will either reveal it to willing people or he will reveal it through unwilling people. Let me see if I can explain to you what I mean by that. He'll either reveal it to willing people or he'll reveal it through unwilling people. And that's where you get these tricky verses, 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, God speaks to Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and now he changes it. This is the first time now. It's not just talking about mercy. And he hardens, hardens the heart, hardens whomever he wills. God does two things with Pharaoh. Let's just start with what we know for sure. The text says that God does two things with Pharaoh. It says he raises him up in verse 17. Raises him up. And the second thing it says is he hardens Pharaoh's heart. That's in 18. And then, and then the verse says why God did both those things. That I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay. So he will raise Pharaoh up. He will harden Pharaoh's heart. And the reason he will do those two things is that his name will be proclaimed in all the earth. At least that much I think you can see in those verses. So I want to look at the two things, and we'll wrap this up. The two things that God does in Pharaoh's heart. And I'm going to start with the second one. First, we need to have a handle on this because this confuses a lot of Christian people. The text says, there's no point pretending it doesn't say this, because it does. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It can't be explained away, and it doesn't need to be explained away. It's actually a simple description of something God did to Pharaoh and does repeatedly through both the Old and New Testaments and will continue to do until Jesus comes again. This is what I want to talk about. The way God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it's a pretty fascinating study. 
Let me just look at some text real quick. Pharaoh comes on the scene. The first time we're introduced to him, Pharaoh comes on the scene and he's shaking his fist in God's face. Exodus 5, 1 and 2. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, quote, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Verse 2. Pharaoh said, Can you imagine? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. There's Pharaoh. This is Pharaoh, by the way, right out of the gate. This is Pharaoh in his own disposition. This is Pharaoh before there's any mention of God hardening his heart. God predicts he will harden Pharaoh's heart twice before he actually does it. He predicts it in Exodus 4.21, and then he says it again in Exodus 7.3. And then, and then God actually hardens Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 9, 12. That order is really important. Exodus 9, 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses, just like the Lord told Moses. But before God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh reveals his own stubbornness in the face of Moses' warnings. You see it in 8, 15. When Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he, he, Pharaoh, hardened his heart. He hardened his own heart. He would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. 8.32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart, this time also. Who hardened his heart? Pharaoh did. And he did not let the people go. Now, it seems to me this is really important to remember. It's easy to get into Romans 9 and just read that phrase about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and just say, oh, well, I guess that's the whole story. And it's not. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart isn't God forcing Pharaoh to do evil. That's important, because while it's one thing, it's one thing to fold arms and say, who are you to question God? It's quite another to deliberately forsake what we know God has revealed about his own character. Look at James 1.13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And we just, you need to bow reverently before God when he states in no uncertain terms, when the Lord states about himself, I don't, I don't tempt and prompt people to evil. That's not what I do. But, well, what about it, Pastor Don? Our text in Romans still says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I believe he did. And I believe he did it in the same way that he hardens all hearts that are in rebellion to him. Consider Paul's teaching in Romans. Romans 1, 22 to 24, and then 26. Listen to these words. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Look, therefore, God gave them up. Is that sounding familiar? Like hardening Pharaoh's heart? God gave them up. 
in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Look at 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Uh, look at 28. Since they did not see fit, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. That's where it starts. God gave them up to a debased mind. Behold, behold God hardening hearts. But this is not God causing the initial blindness. This is God fixing hearts in the direction of their choice. It's exactly the way Jesus himself described the hardening work of God in the hearts of many of the Pharisees in his day. You can see it in Matthew 13. Look at how this tricky passage starts out. Matthew 13, 12. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, okay, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. The one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. The one who chooses to be rebellious, the one who closes his eyes. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Notice now, for this people's heart has grown with their ears they can barely hear and look at this their eyes who closed them they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and i would heal them there's no lack of willingness on god's part let me give you one more passage i just want to show you how this kind of hardening happens over and over again in the scriptures it's not unique to pharaoh now let's look at the church age. The church age as it comes to a close. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 to 12. This is talking about the last days. However you interpret the prophecy, that's a different study. Antichrist and the end time events. However you, you interpret those things, there's no mistake in this concept. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This is when Jesus comes again. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, all right, with all power and false signs and wonders. So here's, here's uh, Satan empowering all sorts of signs and wonders, spectacular things. Ten. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, look, because they refused, they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, this is a big therefore, they refuse to love the truth. What happens? Well, God, not Satan, God sends them a strong delusion that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned. Do you see God hardening hearts again? So yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and so did Pharaoh, and Pharaoh did it first. And this is how God always hardens all stubborn hearts. I said, I said earlier there were two things God did to Pharaoh. 
We spent most of the time here. Hardened Pharaoh's hearts. The second thing God did, it says he raised him up. Verse 17, for this very purpose I have raised you up. So God, God had Pharaoh in a very high place of visibility. He put Pharaoh in a place in Egypt such that what God was doing with Pharaoh would be noticed by the world. And it ties in with this third aspect of these verses. The reason God hardened Pharaoh's hearts and the reason God raised him up. Look at the last part of 17. Don't, don't lose me now. The last part of 17. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might... Read that last part with me out loud. That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why God did it with Pharaoh. Did it work? Let me read you some texts. Exodus 15, 14 and 15. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. This is long after the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Those are the words Israel sang as they celebrated God's deliverance through the crossing of the Red Sea. The nations heard the name of the Lord. Or look at Rahab. Remember Rahab? Joshua 2. She says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on all of us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan in Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Look at the words of the Gibeonites as they sought favor from Joshua. And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. We have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. So, the text says God raises Pharaoh up in that place of visibility. And the reason he does it, the nations. All the nations suddenly hear, here's what God did in Egypt. And the reason they heard of all of that was because of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. This was God's plan. This was God's plan, raising him up. Paul uses the account of Pharaoh as a perfect picture of what God was doing in Israel. Some of Israel became hardened against God's plan. Did that mean God was unjust? Does that mean God wasn't keeping his word? No. Rather, God was doing exactly what he previewed with Pharaoh. He would gather in all sorts of Gentiles because of the Jewish people rejecting. Paul says that. So God has that purpose. His purpose to extend mercy and grace, not on the basis of ethnicity, not on the basis of birth order, not on the basis of human works and accomplishment, but on the basis of faith and divine promise. And that's what Romans chapter 9 is actually all about.